0: You're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by me. Uh, My Rebirth Tour is going to be in Woking on the 3rd of May, Oxford on the 10th of May, Southport 23rd, Aylesbury on the 6th of June, Watford the 7th, Skegness on the 15th of June. Tickets are available at russellbrand.com. Those are the ones we really want to sell. If you like this show, please subscribe to it. It's really important you subscribe and review it on iTunes, only with five-star reviews. We don't want honest, abrasive, Or in any way, aggressive reviews. If I see one star, it's like you're marking your own door with the black spot of doom. (laughs) We will track you down. Now it's Under the Skin Proper with Yeovil Noah Harari. Now I genuinely love this author and I think it's probably safe to call him a philosopher. He wrote that book Sapiens or perhaps it's Sapiens. I don't think it's a book about saps it might be that homos. I'm an homo sapien he wrote sapiens which uh, was a, a book about the history of our species and uh, our historic relationship with other humanoids our aggressive mean relationship with them slaughtering the dear old darling Neanderthals who sounded like a sweet bunch and his new book Homo Deus is a, a sort of a well kind of a look at our future that I thought was a bit bleak and dire here's some Proper facts about Yovil Harari. He's an Israeli historian and a tenured professor in the Department of History at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's the author of various books, including the international bestseller, Sapiens or Sapiens, depending on how you talk. A Brief History of Humankind is the subtitle, which has been translated into 30 languages. And his latest book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Ooh, fancy. So let's talk to Yovil Harari. Harari. I'm saying your name correctly, uh, Yuval. Yuval.
1: Yeah, like, like it's written, it's no, there is no secret there.
0: <laughs> There's no mystery. I think because no. your work is so layered, people assume that even your name has complexity to it.
1: Um, <laughs> it's an unfamiliar name, at least in the English-speaking countries. But, or is it uh, Hebrew? It's Hebrew, yeah.
0: Yuval Noah Harari. Yep, yeah, Exactly. It's a a very beautiful lyrical name. The whole time that I was reading Sapiens, or as I sometimes accidentally call it, Sapiens, I never fully became confident with your name. Mm -hmm. But I do remember barking (laughs) to Gareth, who produces uh, The Trues. There's like an online news thing that I was doing for a while and still do sometimes. I would, like, grab that Sapiens. And go, right, look at this, see? Peugeot's not even a real thing. France is not even a real thing. (laughs) The idea of yours that I think is most appealing to me is that reality, as we understand it, is a fiction, a conception. Can you explain this idea to our listeners, please, Yuval?
1: Um, yes. Well, the idea is that all large-scale human cooperation is based on shared fictions. Uh, so it's most obvious in the case of religion, if you want to get millions of people together uh, to build a cathedral or a mosque or a crusader or a jihad, you'll tell them a fictional story about God and heaven and so forth. And as long as everybody believes the same story, everybody follows the same norms, the same values, and then they can cooperate effectively. Mm. Um, the fiction is, is effective. I'm not saying that uh, there is anything necessarily bad or wrong with uh, about it because you couldn't have large scale human cooperation without some shared fictions. Uh, if you look at other animals like our chimpanzee cousins, you can never convince a bunch of chimpanzees to come together. Uh, to build a cathedral or to fight a war against the neighboring troop of chimpanzees by promising to them that if they are killed in the war, then after they die, they go to chimpanzee heaven and Mm. they receive lots of bananas and coconuts and whatever. Um, But what is really important is to realize that this kind of thing is happening not just with religion, it's happening with all other kinds of large-scale human cooperation, Uh, If you think about the political system, then nations are just a fictional story we've created. Nations have no physical or biological reality. They are not like a mountain or a tree or a river, which you can actually see. And it's the same in the economic field with corporations and with money. Uh, Money is probably the most successful story ever told because it's the only story almost everybody believes. Uh, But again, if you look at the reality of money, then, you know, the the paper bill, the dollar, the euro, the pound, they are worthless, uh, but they become valuable only when somebody comes along and tells us a story about them. And as long as everybody believes the same story, I can take this worthless piece of paper, go to a complete stranger whom I've never met before, give him this piece of paper, and get in exchange a real banana that I can actually eat.
0: You seem to uh, place a lot of value on bananas. Yes, (laughs) I like them. (laughs) That's one thing we've already established, uh, Yuval, from the beginning. So that's the uh, the thing that fascinated me most uh, about your book was the manner in which you termed this idea that money is a consensual notion. Uh, that your breakdown of a corporation, I very much enjoyed. That you said that if Peugeot, the French car company, were to close down all of its factories, were to get rid of all of its workers, were to even to annihilate its product, the concept of Peugeot is that which is most real, and that this idea can be applied to nations and, as you have said, religions. Now, like from from my perspective, where I'm interested in it most is is how it applies to capitalism mm-hmm. and how it applies to the economic systems that uh, dominate our structures and our interaction. Because I feel that, you know, that, that for me, that seems like a more powerful story and a more effective story than religion. Because I would say that, you know, the very fact that we can be told a story about uh, sort of an afterlife, and I would use inverted commas because I think a lot of people that are spiritual don't think of an afterlife as a sort of necessarily a post anatomic existence, but rather <laughs> an existence that 's super material or rather you know transcendent the very the idea of love of course supersedes this mechanistic idea that everything can be withheld and contained in a framework. The very fact that there 's a capacity for human beings to accept stories means that we are on some level interfacing with the supermaterial, mm-hmm. the, the fact that there is the capacity for it. Will you talk to us a little more, uh, Yuval, uh, about the st- the, what you think are the dominant stories of our time? We've mentioned already money, religion and economics. Mm-hmm. Are these the stories that we
1: most need to challenge and dismantle? The two most important stories, I mean, first of all, we don't necessarily have to dismantle and challenge every story. I'm not saying that stories are bad. Stories can be very good. Uh, Harry Potter is a very good story. Um, And also, if you look at the social level, then without believing in some common fictions you cannot have a functioning society. So I'm not saying necessarily we need to challenge all of them, but we we do need the ability to tell the difference between fiction and reality. And as a species, this is a big problem for Homo sapiens. The success of Homo sapiens as a species is built on our inability to tell the difference between fiction and reality. We rule the world because of our global networks of cooperation, and they are all based on believing in fictional stories. So it's an, in a way, we have an evolutionary pressure not to be able to tell the difference between mm. fiction and reality. Now, if you, if you talk about the dominant fictions of our time, then yeah, I would say the two most important ones are capitalism and humanism which for the last few generations have been in alliance, but now this alliance is breaking down, and much of what happens in the world can be explained in terms of capitalism and uh, humanism divorcing and going along separate ways. Now, capitalism is based uh, uh, aside from money, It's also based on stories about corporations, which again, are not real entities. They are just what uh, lawyers call legal fictions. Even the lawyers, if you ask them, they will tell you uh, Microsoft and General Motors and Toyota and all that. These are legal fictions. Mm. It's just a story that the powerful storytellers or shamans called lawyers have invented and created and everybody believes in it.
0: It's good. Uh, I understand what you're saying. And this might be one of those points where I do some of my translation just to make sure that this doesn't lose its populist edge. Mm -hmm. That, That in a way you're saying that lawyers... Create spells, legal spells, to say there is a real thing called Coca Cola. Yes. It's a real thing and we have to respect it and regard it and pay for it. And I remember as a kid, prior to having access to the kind of information that you're talking about or the way that sort of structures work and the way that corporations operate, the sort of moment where I started to think there isn't anything inherently young or sexy <laughs> about Coca Cola. It's just a brown, sugary drink. And this alliance between Coca Cola and youth jubilation mm. and sexiness. I am doing that work in my own consciousness as a result of having been subjected to images that continually associate sexiness to Coca-Cola. But there is no inherentness. If Coca-Cola had to do mandatory adverts for five years, where a sort of a homeless man washed his balls in Coke, it would, it would, be, it would, it would be. I wouldn't drink it. As often, some people would drink it more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but some people, a lot of people, would drink it less. So you're, I like this idea that, you know, and you touched upon Harry Potter, that there is a wizard spell, a magical spell has created Toyota and General Motors. Then similar, and, and, and as you say, this cooperation is to some degree quite vital and necessary for our survival. And even the ones that seem detrimental to our survival are of benefit to some people. Yes. Everything that we think is detrimental, someone is benefiting from it. That's why that spell continues to perpetuate. <laughs> and whilst we don't want to unravel every story, where would you say is the impact point? of where some of the stories could be unravelled, e.g. stories that negatively impact the, power of the planet or create massive inequality?
1: Um, for me, the real question is the question of suffering, hmm. um, whether a story cr- generates more suffering or less. And this is also the key way to differentiate between realities and in, in fiction, I mean, it's a bit complicated, but to to make a very long story short, if you want a quick way to tell the difference, what is a real entity and what is just a fiction created by all kinds of shamans and lawyers and so forth, you should ask whether this entity can suffer. A human being can suffer, it's real. A cow, a chicken can suffer, they are real. But Coca-Cola cannot suffer. It has no mind, it has no consciousness, it has no feeling, no pain. If it loses money, Coca-Cola doesn't suffer. Maybe the manager of Coca-Cola suffers, or, mm-hmm. the, or the workers, but Coca-Cola is not something that can suffer. Similarly, a nation cannot suffer. We say that, I don't know, Germany uh, suffered a defeat in the First World War. But this is obviously just a metaphor. Mm. Germany cannot suffer. It has no mind, no consciousness. Germans, as individuals, may suffer, but not the nation. Mm. And so this is like the easiest way to tell the difference. What about uh, love? Can we add love to the suffering? What, Please, uh, Professor. As something, well, that's because well, not- like,
0: otherwise it's just like the, the, the otherwise our reality is determined on some level by suffering. Because similarly, Coca Cola cannot love. Similarly, Germany that's cannot true. love. And, and uh, like, isn't it interesting that that, that, that in that the, the episode that perhaps most of def- well, not most defines Germany, Christ, it's not up to me to decide. But when <laughs> like during the Second World War, the the relationship that Germany had with particular myths and narratives did characterise Germany as this... It used mythology very potently. It used symbolism and logos very powerfully. Germany is this. Mm -hmm. Now, Germany was in a, a time of great crisis and needed a different narrative. And the narrative they relied upon was a relationship between the land and the people and the soil and the blood. And, of course, there were terrifying consequences for millions and millions of people across Europe and the world. But... This was one of uh, a very potent
1: use of fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, again, going back to Harry Potter, it's basically creating spells, powerful spells from language. Mm. I mean, you you know, in almost all traditions, you have this idea of the sorcerer just saying uh, certain words and this is a powerful spell Mm. that changes reality. And we think that this is a myth, but this is actually a reality. Every society has powerful word sorcerers that just by stringing together words and images, they can change reality. And uh, this is how nations are constructed. This is how corporations are are constructed through these word spells. Mm. And um, again, I'm not saying that we should completely abandon that because then all society collapses. But we should be very careful that the stories we create serve us instead of us serving them. Yes. All too often in history, you find yourself uh, you know, sacrificing your life for an imaginary entity that was created by these magicians and sorcerers supposedly in order to help you.
0: Yes, it's intriguing our willingness to lay our lives down for the for the imagination. I suppose because the things that personally seem so important to us are often invisible. My own love for my girlfriend and my love for my daughter are invisible, behavioural at best. They are not things that are easy to quantify and manage. May I talk to you about your private life for a while? You're yeah. a married man. Is Isaac your
1: husband? Yeah. Isaac is my husband. He's here with us now. Yes,
0: Isaac's in the room along with Prina, who I guess he's working for you with the publishers, is that? correct that's my mate gareth over there um just so you know everyone in the room is he produces this (laughs) show um so uh so of course marriage i'm thinking about getting married myself married is marriage is one of these spells is one of these institutions a
1: few words and reality changes kabam suddenly now
0: (laughs) you better get on with this guy because otherwise half of them publishing profits ta-ta and you like like you're a vegan that's true also isn't it yeah because so because like, what's interesting I, I think about the countercultural let's call it the countercultural movement is like that often it's thought of as being somewhat frivolous, ethereal, light. But I feel that pragmatism is a very is almost what m- defines my worldview. That you know we live on a finite amount of space. I happen to believe in God, b- bizarrely, like you know, but like you know, but my beliefs are determined somewhat by the fact we live on a finite amount of space. There is a finite amount of resources. There is a certain number of people. So we should be operating systems that are uh, practically work on this basis, not living in accordance with stories that persecute some people and that cause suffering to a great many people. Now, well, the reason I suppose I brought up your marriage and the fact that you live sort of like a, a vegan life and you live in a sort of a community, an agricultural community, is that oh, true? Oh, no, no,
1: no. What is it? I live in a village, but it's not an agricultural community. What is it? Then, it just a normal it, village? Just a village in Israel.
0: No one's doing anything off-key, sharing carrots No, or no, no.
1: It, it's not a kibbutz. It's uh, not a kibbutz. <laughs> it's just, people uh,
0: sometimes want to say that about you? That you live in a kibbutz?
1: Um, maybe, but it's not true. I, 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 my, my grandparents <laughs> lived in a kibbutz, but I, I never lived in a kibbutz.
0: No? You live a regular life in a village?
1: Whether they're regular or not depends on your perspective, but, but the village is, is totally regular, yeah. It's not, not weird. you not like you share with me. Let's no, invent no, our own no, no, money. No. It's not some kind of socialist commune or anything like that. <laughs> None of that going on there.
0: But how, where does this, where is there a, may I ask you about a crossover with the stuff that you're writing, which is talking about the potency of ideas and stories, which I've got some personal experience of because, you know, like uh, the great uh, graphic artist Alan Moore says it's no coincidence that we spell words. They are spelled mm. into existence. I've recognised from my own career that when you start to say things that are a challenge to certain economic realities, certain financial narratives, that you, one feels a pressure Now, someone that's written, you know, your first book *Sapiens*, which sort of delineates, I think, quite beautifully, accessibly, and clearly, what we are as a species, or certainly aspects of it, and the way that our world works, and the the way that power operates. Yeah, do you feel an obligation to demonstrate these ideas in your own life, and to um, what do I want to say, Uh, profligate and share, propagate these stories, different stories?
1: Well, for me, again, the the crucial thing is to be able to differentiate between the fictional stories and reality, which is extremely difficult because the whole of society is based on being unable to distinguish between the two. If you go around all day uh, realizing that the nation and money and corporations and Coca-Cola and all that, these are just stories created Mm. by humans, then it would be very difficult uh, to sustain uh, the economic and political system that we know. Um, so I, my effort is to know, to somehow keep making the effort to differentiate reality from fiction. Uh, I do it partly through meditation. Mm. I, I meditate for two hours every day. That's pretty hardcore, mate. Two hours, what, in the beginning of the day? Uh, one hour in the beginning and one hour at the end. What kind of meditation? Uh, Vipassana meditation. What does that mean? It's, the basic instruction is you just try to observe reality as it is in the present moment. You close your eyes, you sit, you do nothing, you don't try to think about anything in particular, you don't try to create anything, you just observe what is really happening right now. Mm. What? What are all... I mean, leave aside all the stories, all the explanations, all the theories that the mind generates every moment, and let's see what is really happening right now. So you start with the simplest realities of breath coming in and out of your nostrils. You just try to observe when is the breath coming in and when is the breath going out. That's it. It sounds like, the, like you know, the easiest thing in the world, but... Um, When I started, I couldn't do it for more than 10 seconds. Because you have a very active, conscious mind. Not just me. I mean, most people I talk to who tried it uh, couldn't do it for more than 10, 20 seconds because your mind immediately runs away to some fantasy, some memory. Mm. I mean, if you Mm. try to concentrate on some very interesting movie, it's very easy. Mm. You can sit glued to the television for two hours and just take it all in without being distracted. But this is because it's easy to focus on these fantasies and fictions. But you try to focus on the reality, and that's extremely difficult. Even if it's a very simple reality, if you then try to observe deeper realities, like where is my anger coming from? Where is my suffering coming from? This is far more difficult than observing just your breath but you start with the breath and and I was amazed when I did it for the first time just how difficult it is just to observe reality. Within yourself, you say that when you are practicing your own
0: meditation, what's that word again? Vipassana. Vipassana meditation. That it's about focusing on a fundamental reality, a physical, mechanical reality of the breath and yet some internal mechanism constructs and relays narratives to you. Mm -hmm. So at the basis the potency of these external narratives, e.g. the narrative of there is such a thing as Great Britain, which has a landmass, and ideology that has Brexited from the European Union, that is latching on to our inner, propens- our inner propensity to narrativise. My own experience of meditation is that, you know, I try, you know, I do mantra meditation, I focus on the mantra or I focus on the breath. Sometimes I listen to guided meditation. And yes, I don't know, you know, what it is that is first provoked. But, you know, thoughts happen feelings happen, and I am conscious of myself trying to create critical distance, trying to regard, in fact, my thoughts as the first layer of the material world, given that my thoughts themselves surely are mechanical, have an, uh, are quantifiable as energy, mm-hmm. are quantifiable perhaps on some level with the correct lens as material, perhaps with the right barometer you would be able to weigh thoughts and see thoughts as a layer placed upon what we could call pure consciousness or Mm -hmm. unimpeded consciousness. You think your ability to see these narrative strands in external reality is based somewhat on your uh, practice in meditation?
1: Definitely. I mean, if I haven't practiced meditation, I couldn't have written Sapiens or Homo Deus, uh, which are, again, uh, what they try to do, both books, is try to distinguish what is the reality of history and what are the narratives and the stories that people have been constructing? Because the, again, the basic tendency of our species. Um, and also when we look for meaning in life, or when we look for identity, everybody wants to know what who am I? Mm. What am I doing in the world? What is the meaning of my life? And in 99% of cases, what people want to hear in response is a story. a story about the cosmos, and uh, that they have a part to play in the story, and I just need to discover what is my role in the great story of life and then fulfill the story. Mm. And um, my impression is that any answer that comes in the shape of a story is wrong because, yes, Homo sapiens is a storytelling ape, but reality is not shaped like a story. So whenever somebody starts giving you an answer about the meaning of life mm. in the shape of a story, uh, God created the universe and he said this and you should do that, that's wrong. Mm. It doesn't even matter what the, the, con- the actual contents are. I mean, there are so many stories around. But just if you just notice the shape of the mm. story, mm. there is something wrong there. Do you not think that language is to a degree
0: limited in that it will always narrativise. And would you not agree, Yuval, that the fact that there is such a uh, corollary in all of these narratives, I'm referring to the work of uh, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, where one sees continually archetypical journeys, archetypical characters, archetypical narratives reemerging as evidence for some kind of essential truth, what in Buddhism would be called, dharma you know and, and of course our humanistic understanding of time and space means we're going to narrativize it because we are all born and we are all going to die and we were all in the ed, the uteral eden and cast out of that garden mm-hmm. into this world of pain and screaming but does not the fact that there is a, cont- a seeming continuum, a seeming recognizable thread throughout scriptures and great dusty books throughout the world, whether they came from the desert or the Bodhi tree, is that not an indication of some essence? Is your own consciousness experiencing your own breath and your own love for your own
1: husband not an indication of some essence? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, there are some also great differences between the great stories of the different traditions, they cannot be all reduced to a single archetype. And uh, even if there are some similarities across all cultures, maybe they just indicate some basic biological fact about the way Homo sapiens perceives reality and not some deep truth about reality as such. And... You know, I mean, all this talk about God and reality and so forth, I usually find that people have two very different concepts of God, and they tend to mix them together in a very confusing way. On the one hand, you have God, the the mystery, That, you know, it's late at night, you sit around the campfire and you discuss the meaning of life and and what is reality and where did the Big Bang and the laws of physics came from and you don't know the answers and you say, God. And this God, God the mystery, is really just a label to our own ignorance and to our own limitations. Mm. And the most distinctive feature of this God is that you know absolutely nothing about him, he's unknown, he's unknowable, and then you have a very different God, the angry man in the sky, about whom you know everything in the minutest details. This is the God that has opinions about fashion, about food, about sex, about politics. This God, we know everything. He wants us to eat this. And he doesn't like women to wear bikinis. And he doesn't like men to have sex. And he doesn't like teenagers to masturbate. And so forth and so on. We know so many tiny little details about what this God wants. And... What I find sometimes very problematic is that people confuse the two. If you go to some religious Jew in Israel and you ask him, how do you know God exists? He would start talking about the great mystery, about how science doesn't understand the origins of the Big Bang and life and all that. And that sounds very convincing. And then like a magician with a sleight of hand that changes one card for another card, he would suddenly replace the mystery God, for the angry man in the sky, and would somehow tell you, because we don't know uh, the origin of the Big Bang, homosexuality is wrong, and you shouldn't drive on the Sabbath, and you shouldn't eat non-kosher food, and all that. And there is absolutely no connection. This, between I agree the two with gods.
0: 100%. I agree that us not knowing the origins of the Big Bang, it's very difficult to say don't have sex with people that have got the same genitals as you on that basis. Anyone that's making that connection, they are making it up because they like it. I would like to add a third God to <laughs> your polar idea of ultimate realities. And this is the God of love. This mm-hmm. is this inherent sense that I have and that you have that seems to be internally present, inhered within us that we must be good, that we must be loving, that of course I... Sin, or I err uh, or I do things that are selfish and lustful and greedy but I know I am doing these things and I know that it is a transgression not against some social inculcation although how would I ever delineate between that which I learned and that which I essentially understand it, other than the pang other than poetry other than Michelangelo other than Mozart and Chaplin other than our great cultures driven by love and by connection and people that don't understand that the psychopath the murderers, the maniacs, those people that transgress against that code, we all know that code is present. This is the God that I revere. And this mm. God, for me, can never be used to inflict suffering or hierarchies. But for for me, this is the God that we must make a connection with. The God that is defined only by the self. The God that... Isn't prescribed or delineated by another, but is felt internally and is used as a monitor of your own conduct, mm-hmm. not of the conduct of others.
1: Well, I have several th- different things. No, you don't. I've th- just th- won the argument. Good <laughs> <laughs> <Could> night.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> no, can't. Don't tell me. On. Um, I
1: have s- several different things to say about it. I- I'm wondering what is the most important. I mean, one thing is that, as a historian, a- as a person, I have a great empathy. To this idea, as a historian, I'm very worried about it, because I guess you know more people have been killed in the name of love than in the name of almost any other thing in the world. Uh, It starts with things like love and love of country. But even the like the pure you love think of God—that's God, love, mate—or is that power?
0: Because no, I, I mean, I think you're doing a magician's sleight of hand yourself. There, I think I held up the card of mystery, and you held up the card of orthodoxy. You held up the you vow the human, and then you held up you vow the historian. But I see just one man before me.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm just saying that again. I, I'm careful about words, uh, and the word love, um, just like the word God, has been implicated over history. I mean, there is so much, so much baggage being carried by this word, that um, uh, this is why I I worry, I'm worried about it, uh, because of the historical tradition of piling lots of very problematic things on, on this love. I mean, again, if you think about Christianity, the religion of love, it's the, if you make a survey of history of all the different religions, then the religion of love has persecuted and killed more people mm. than any other religion in the world. Yeah, but I'm so, not, that's back. you know,
0: like, I mean, we, me and you can side by side bag that one up and say, pack that in, because, you know, that's sort of about territory. This is not about beingness. This is not about what personal relationship do you have with your own consciousness when okay, you're so, a- so observing l- Let's your- go
1: to the other thing I, I wanted to say, mm-hmm. um, which is that, The other big myth of our era besides capitalism is uh, humanism. Mm. And humanism is the belief that the ultimate authority and meaning in the world Mm. comes from human feelings. This is why it's called humanism. Um, It's the idea that any big questions we face as individuals or as collectives, the answer will come from human feelings. Uh, in politics, you want to know who should rule. You ask people how do you feel? This is the basic of basis of democratic elections and uh, in ethics, if it feels good, do it and, and so forth. And
0: I don't think you're right there, mate. I think it comes from rationalism. I think okay. that people sort of ask what you feel according to the data and information that we've given you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I, you know, like take sort of what's ha- like, you know, of course, you, one could easily argue Donald Trump the result of anger, the human feeling of anger, Brexit. Similarly, perhaps, you could, and, and all conflict as a result of anger. But that, I think that that anger has a relationship with rationalism. And indeed, you know, I'm getting this from your own bloody book. The stories <laughs> people have been told in those situations they 've been narrativized into rage and if we and, and don 't we have a we and i mean you know me and you have a duty to narrativise them into love. I mean, because when you talk about this, like that you're a man that spends two hours... I'm always interested when I spend time with people that meditate a lot because I think you are making an effort to have access with, you know, not what you feel, but who is observing what you feel. Mm. Not what you think, but who is observing what you think. And for me, this is what I mean by, inverted commas, God. That there appears to be some kind of consciousness that is beyond anatomical me, that is beyond sensory me, sensual and sensual me. And... You know, of course, at some point, stories have to be told. Language has to be deployed. But it's only, I think, when it becomes about the exertion of power and the and the uh, pre- prescription of orthodoxy that we have a problem around love. You know, like, a, then it's not love anymore. Then, you know, to use your brilliant idiom, that's when the sleight of hand and the transition yes. of card has occurred. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but again, I think that part of the problem with relying on our feelings so much is that we don't understand our feelings as well as we think we do. It's very complicated. And um, therefore, again, I'm, I have an empathy towards the, the basic attitude, but I would be very cautious about uh, trusting our feelings too much because very often we don't really understand them and we don't really understand where they are coming from. Uh, very often our feelings are shaped, as you say, by these external stories, by, by these external narratives. And therefore, just by observing myself and seeing, oh, I feel in a certain way, that doesn't mean it's the truth. It's true. That's the reality. I feel this way. But it's not necessarily. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean I should act accordingly. It's very, um, what I try to do personally in meditation is observe your feelings. Mm. Don't act according to them. Don't mm. play them. Just see, like, you, like whether it's anger or whether it's love. When was the last time you just spent time in the company of your anger or of your love? Doing nothing, not trying to, to implement it to act in the world, just what is, what is happening to me? Mm. How does it feel when I'm angry? How does it feel when I'm in love? And sometimes you find that the labels you give your feelings are not, are not so accurate. Mm. Like you say to yourself, to yourself, I love, but when you actually observe, you see this is not love. This is something else. Yes, this is very good. I'm very fascinated to hear you talk about this because I know that you're
0: sort of a great academic and a great writer. And it, for me to hear that there is such an intricate connection between this and your personal relationship with your own consciousness and meditation is quite fascinating. And I think people do misdiagnose their feelings. I think that quite often by love we mean desire, quite often by anger we mean discomfort. I'm fascinated by this. One of the things i got from, I've not read all of Homo Deus, but one of the main things I've got is none of this stuff matters anyway because bloody robots are on the precipice of taking (laughs) over everything and all of our little problems now, like Donald Trump and Brexit and even climate change, and they're going to be like... Piffling little mosquitoes compared to the great monolith—the glacial problem of artificial intelligence, robots coming over here stealing our jobs from the technological oh. dimension, and uh, and bloody AI. Tell me, what are we going to do with what you the, to use your phrase—the uncoupling of consciousness from intelligence? We've created an intel—we're <laughs> making ourselves bloody obsolete, and God is now an algo rhythm. What's going to
1: happen, you Val? Well, it depends on the, on the level of, of, of your question. If it's the job market, then yes, that's a terrible problem we are facing. Uh, within the next, the next few decades, AI is going to outperform humans in more and more tasks and push... Two decades?
0: That's not far, is it? Two,
1: three, four, nobody knows for sure, but the fact is nobody has any clue how the job market is going to look like in 30 years. Mm. Which means, by the way, that nobody has any clue what to teach children in school today because we just don't know what kind of skills they will need in 30 years. So school's are a
0: waste of time, like I always said, even while I was at it, I was thinking they don't know what they're saying this lot. So um, they're teaching us it- the stuff that's irrelevant and obsolete and may I say that if it's if this technological uh, evolution is happening in tandem with capitalism, we're in a lot of trouble, because if yes. there is not a, let's care for human beings as a dear old Gandhi, God love him, used to say, we need production by the masses, not mass production. If we have no ethical component to our economics, the post Marxist idea that you know economics must be the heart of all our systems, whether it's a redistribution of wealth model or an accumulation of wealth model. If economics remains at the heart of our systems, we are double fucked. Is that Um, what's happening? Yes,
1: I mean to put it in a very provocative way, (laughs) what we are talking about is the creation of the useless class, Mm. a class we have never seen before in history. Uh, People who are useless, not from the viewpoint of their mother or of their husband, people who are useless from the viewpoint of the economic and military system. And at Mm. least the way the world looks today, you don't want to be useless to the system. Because all the amazing achievements, let's say, even of the welfare state over the last century, all the investment in education and health and so forth, this was largely because the system needed the people. Even in dictatorships like Nazi Germany, the state invested heavily in mass education and mass health because Germany, Nazi Germany, needed millions of poor people to serve as soldiers and as workers. Now, in the future, if the state, if the economy doesn't need you, then in many places it will have no incentive whatsoever to invest in your education and health. And I think we can see, Yuval, can't we, that what the tendency
0: is already. If you look at the United States of America and what happens to its huge underclass, or if you can see what happens with the power of transnational corporations and the global underclass, that it's already this class already exists, doesn't it? There is already... A, a huge percentage of the world's population are extraneous. I saw an analysis that just said America just has to come to terms with the fact that it doesn't need twenty percent of its population now, so it mm. wants to put them in prison primarily for pigment reasons or drug reasons. Seem to be two of the easy ways in. But this is a problem. This is a problem of one of those stories that you break down in your first book, like the uh, uh, capitalism, the story of capitalism that that we need limitless growth, that w- that we need hierarchical systems that are entrenched. Now.
1: Oh, I- I- But but the point is, Mm. until today, as we said in the beginning, capitalism and humanism were in alliance, were kind Mm -hmm. of marriage, because capitalism needed humanism. You needed the humans, you needed the people. What happens when uh, you have capitalism but no humanism because you don't need most humans? So all the assumptions of the current political discussion are based on 20th century realities. And in the 20th century, I mean... To some extent, at least, there was an alliance between capitalism and humanism, and much of the liberalization of politics and society that you saw all over the world in in the past few decades was because of economic reasons. There was an economic pressure on governments all over the world to liberalize because the thinking was it makes good economic sense. Mm. But what happens once capitalism and humanism part ways? that you can have a growing capitalist economy without most humans and without liberalizing your politics and your social system. Um, Another and even deeper problem is uh, a very basic change in our understanding of human life and meaning. Most people, and certainly most of art, conceive of human life as a drama of decision-making. If you think about any Shakespeare play, play, about any Hollywood movie, then it all revolves around decision-making. You need to decide whether to marry X Mm, or Y. Yes. You need to decide. Decision is character. Yes. And... With the rise of AI, we are very close to the point when all decisions can be made better Absolutely. by an AI. You're so, right. I
0: mean it happens even now. You like when you're in the bank, they sort of like they just defer to an algorithm. Yeah. Could I have some money please? Wait a second, let me talk to the boss. <laughs> no, fuck off. Right? So, like, like, and, and like, you can't argue with that. Because now, the algorithm said no. The algorithm says no. Computer says no to quote Little Britain. So we're making ourselves obsolete we are like the image I have is
1: it's more than economics I mean we are talking now about the very meaning of life again Go try on. to think about a shake your favorite Shakespeare play or your favorite Hollywood Hamlet comedy when the Still decisions Hamlet. are taken are taken by an algorithm like Hamlet wants to know what to do. So okay, I'll just ask Google what to do. Kill your father immediately and go and have sex with your mother. Bloody hell, Google. <laughs> we need to check that
0: algorithm. <laughs> that's what it's going to do anyway in a 4 hours. All right, so that's it. yes, the, the the our capacity for making decisions is about to be removed from us because we are creating a consciousness that we ourselves aren't even going to be able to an appreciate. An intelligence, not an, the in, cons- an, int- an intelligence that transcends the the capacity of our consciousness in a way that is god. I mean, one of the that I think of God is that information is infinite, the human capacity for understanding is finite. Mm-hmm. We require faith, we yes. require faith.
1: So now we have faith in the algorithm. The algorithm has more data than us, mm-hmm. it has greater computing power. So, it, you know, it starts as you say with the banks. Now the banks have greater and greater faith in the algorithm. You apply for a loan, they say no, you ask why, they say the algorithm said no, and they have faith in the algorithm. And Faith. this will happen more and more in the private lives of individuals. Uh, you want to know what to study at college, so you ask Google or Facebook. They know you better than you know yourself. Yes. They know that the job market, university, whatever. And eventually, even when you have to decide whom to marry or whether to marry, you say that you're, you're considering whether to get married or not. So in 30 years, you'll just ask Google. I won't, because <laughs> I'm against this this dystopia, this... Aldous Huxley
0: awful new techno world because what i think can like yes we can create intelligence but we cannot as create consciousness we mm-hmm. cannot create consciousness so like this for me feels like a yet another pivotal moment in human history i feel like we're standing before a beanstalk that if we don't take action now it's going to be too late to take action is this like in your book homo deus are you is there are you not saying we have a human imperative to make change, of course. Like, what was the argument? You know, again, this is I'm giving you your own information back. That the argument for agriculture was it's going to make things better for us. Oh no, it made things better for a few people. You're fucked. Then the technological revolution. Oh, it's going to make things better for us. Where is this leisure time? Where is the, our days off? You know, like you know. And now, that you're saying that the next level of this is almost to make humans defunct and obsolete. And we're already seeing this because strewn on the London streets where we record this podcast are humans that are extraneous to our purpose. They are spilled, self-medicated, drugged, empty, half-finished suicides adorn our streets. Now, humanism, I think, is a problem because it derives its ideology from... From a a secondary, not a secondary, a primary and an earlier system, it comes from Christianity. It comes from ideas that themselves are somewhat tainted. But my argument, to return to an earlier point, is that at the core of these faiths is we do still feel love. The algorithm is not going to say, "I'm going to give you a mortgage because I love you," (laughs) or "You should do that because you love Isaac," or "You've got to look after Mabel." Eventually, human beings. I mean, this is, I suppose, the um, the apocalyptic vision, the apocalyptic aspect of uh, Homo Deus, is uh, the algorithm will decide
1: ultimately that humans are
0: a bad idea, that humans are a blip, that we are a slobbering
1: mucusy blob. No, I, I, th- I think that this is the Hollywood apocalypse, that the robots are going to kill us. And I think this is the less interesting and less likely apocalypse. The far more frightening apocalypse is the apocalypse of banality. Mm. That the algorithms are going to make good decisions for us and we are going to become irrelevant uh, and not exterminated. I mean, and even, even when it comes to, you know, love and marriage and all that, the algorithm will be able, you know, it will follow your heart 24 hours a day with biometric sensors every time you go on a date. The, Google knows what happens to your blood pressure every time you look at this person, every time you kiss, every time you hold hands. And based on this amazing uh, database of biometric knowledge, Google will understand potentially even your deepest emotions better than you understand them. Or you go on a date and afterwards you you wonder, did she like me? She didn't like me? Oh, I'll just ask Google. Google was there. He was following us. She was following us. I don't know. Yeah, Google's going to be
0: beyond gender. Google's probably got about nine genitals up and down its back like a stegosaurus made of cocks and vaginas.
1: Uh, an that's image. an interesting idea.
0: <laughs> I don't know where it came from I'm not, I'm not well <laughs> but you're saying that we will ultimately exclude chaos we will ultimately exc- exclude chance the trickster figure whether it be raven or coyote or Christ himself present in every myth the possibility for chaos the relationship we must always have with chaos as this planet spins ultimately and definitely into the sun if that is excluded that can't be rightly called progress that can be c- called a conclusion a conclusion mm-hmm to the role of human beings, excluded from the role of decision-making. Isn't it sort of in a way that we have to prove that we can come up with a better narrative, prove that we can make better decisions?
1: Yeah, but, but the thing is, in, in in the normal Hollywood science fiction apocalypse, it starts when some engineer or company have this new robot or new computer that can make everything better for us. Yeah, That's Skynet, Act 1. the Matrix. And then Act 2, something goes wrong. Something unexpected goes wrong and the robot or computer takes an awful decision. Mm. And this is the apocalypse and now we have to save ourselves by relying on Neo or somebody. <laughs> and, and this is, I think he did a bloody good job. And, and this is very flattering to us mm. because it means nothing can really be better than you. All the plans to create something better than you, it won't work. You are the best in the world and we like it. We want this kind of apocalypse. Mm. The far more frightening situation is act one. They create this massive new Google computer to make decisions for us. Act two... What do you know? It actually works. Mm. It makes better decisions. And then, so what about us? So we are obsolete. What is our role in in the cosmos? Nothing. This is far more frightening than the Mm. robots are coming to kill us. Yes, it is. It's awful, isn't it? it, Because of the banality of it, the the banality and the
0: blandness. And for all we know, it's already happened. And we're already living in this sort of tarnished utopia where we don't even notice that we're not making our decisions because the first thing it would do would be to cover its own tracks can I ask you a few more questions because I don't look yes. I don't want our interview Yuval to be basically we're fucked <laughs> <laughs> we've got to find some upside to this stuff haven't we because I, I for example am a uh, great believer in, if not humanity, a believer that... Because guess what I think. Is I think that, that we are just a temporary manifestation of some other consciousness. And I think that the reason there is an inherent value in you communing with your own consciousness in meditation is because there is something essential occurring in that instance. And that we've come out too much into the into this uh, the dynamism of the material world. We've forgotten that we have a relationship with pure consciousness. And if we have a better relationship with pure consciousness, we'll be- make better decisions, we'll create better systems, and we'll use technologi- technology sagely. And wisely, and we'll be able to. You know, although it probably, we, we will be can quite definitely. Calm.
1: No, we can definitely do it. I mean, I don't think technology is is deterministic, and I think that the past shows us we can make some very wise choices. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, everybody was terrified about nuclear war, uh, the Cold War ending in a nuclear holocaust, mm. and many people thought this is inevitable. Yes, and as we all know, it didn't happen. Mm. Uh, people made the right choices, the wise decisions. Um, I mean, for me, I guess, as a person, the, the one person I admire most, at least in recent history, is probably Mikhail Gorbachev. I think we maybe all owe our lives uh, to Gorbachev. If you had somebody else in the Kremlin in the late 1980s, like Milosevic or somebody, maybe nobody would be here today to have this discussion. And, you know, Gorbachev gave up more power than any person in the history of the world and thereby he brought the Cold War to an end without a nuclear catastrophe. Hmm. And I, th- I find this extremely admirable and also hopeful for the future that people still have agency. Uh, technology, just because you invented a nuclear bomb, doesn't mean it's going to go off. And people do have the capacity uh, to, give up, to give up power in order to make the world a better place. Yes, selflessness, sacrifice, transcendence of the self,
0: to look beyond the determination of your body as just an anatomy, your individualism, no longer the defi- the determining factor of who you are. I, I feel that the idea of heroism, the idea that a person is willing to sacrifice themselves, whether it's lay down their life or lay down their power is appealing because it alludes to a narrative that is inherent, the narrative of oneness. That there are some narratives that are, that are not pure human fictions, mm-hmm. but that have an essential truth. And that we recognise them somehow when we see them. Like something aligns that there is some echo, some echo somewhere within us may I ask you a few other questions yeah, you sure. so uh, like, um, like I like this idea this is, my mate Gareth just passed me these to get across <laughs> the history divided into four parts the cognitive revolution the agricultural revolution the unification of humanity and the scientific revolution do you think you can break that down into something so that say if I wanted to win an argument in a pub in England <laughs> like I go yeah well it's like this mate you know what I mean it was the cognitive revolution then there was the agricultural revolution could you put it into the sort of terms that could be bandied about in a five minute chat
1: Yes, uh, the cognitive revolution is the point when we are transformed from insignificant apes into the most powerful force on the planet. Uh, Until about 70,000 years ago, humans were just another kind of ape in East Africa without any special impact on the environment. We were not more important than chimpanzees or fireflies or jellyfish or any other kind of animal around. And then we got, nobody really knows how, by some change in the brain probably, we got this amazing ability, linguistic ability, to start telling stories and creating fictions. And this was the basis for people cooperating in larger and larger numbers. And this large-scale cooperation gave us an advantage over everybody else. 50 Neanderthals against 50 Homo sapiens, the Neanderthals will win. Because they're much harder, they're tough, they're They are tough, they're bigger, they have even bigger brains. (coughs) But 50 Neanderthals against 500 sapiens, the sapiens win. And this is how we took over the world. And exterminated, even before we built the first village, we exterminated about 50% of the large mammals of the planet.
0: Wow, we had genocide before we had even architecture.
1: Uh, basically, yes. It's our creed. Um, in a way, you can say this is uh, With how- our... Without genocide, what are we? That's our genocide. Uh, if we take away our genocide. What's next, our flag? I think <laughs> that you can say Homo sapiens is a serial killer. Christ. We are the serial killers of the ecosystem. So this is the cognitive revolution. Then you have the agricultural revolution, when Homo sapiens learns how to control and manipulate a very small number of other species, like wheat and rice and chickens and cows. And give, this makes us even more powerful than before. This is the foundation for building Cities and kingdoms and empires and and whatnot. Because before that, we're beholden to the we're
0: beholden to the seasons. There's a bit of rice over there in January. The rest of the time, you're in stuck. You can have a bit of cow milk when it has a baby. But once we go, hang on a minute, we could get them doing this the whole time. Yeah. Then that's the beginning. That's the big. That's the most significant, uh, uh, hugely significant uh, evolution for us Yeah,
1: that's the second step. Uh-huh. Uh Previously, we could cooperate in large numbers between us, but we had no control over other animals and plants and and really the ecosystem. The agricultural revolution is when we start to control other species, and this gives us the power to multiply and to create the cities and kingdoms and empires and all that. Then the third step is to create cooperation on an even larger scale, which is a global level. Uh, Previously, humankind was divided into thousands of different separate tribes. Uh, In a process lasting centuries, we unify to create the single civilization that today encompasses the whole world. There are still different religions, different states, and so forth, but today the entire world is a single political, economic, and cultural system. And then the fourth, fourth stage is the scientific revolution. When uh, we basically hack the laws of nature, we mm. understand in a deeper and deeper way how biology and chemistry and physics function. And this gives us the ability to start manipulating biology and chemistry and physics on a more fundamental level. Mm. And now we are very close To the point when this gives us really divine abilities of creation and destruction, we are very close to the point when we can start designing and manufacturing living beings. We can start designing life.
0: That's brilliant. I like understanding that. What is this force that's driving it? What is this force that's pushed us from single-cellular creatures all the way through, like his, this reptilian history, mammalian history, these apes till that cognitive ape, then the agricultural one, then the cooperative one? What is this force, and is there a narrative to that? Is there a drive to yes. it, or is it just like universal expansion, just um, energy moving meaninglessly?
1: Well, at least beyond a certain point, the force is dissatisfaction. <laughs> Uh, Certainly when you you look at humans, the most basic reaction of the human mind to achievement is not satisfaction, it's craving for more. Mm. It doesn't matter what you achieve. Deep down in your mind, the reaction is, I want more. Mm. And because this is the basic reaction, you're never satisfied and you constantly look for more, for greater power. And this is why today we are thousands of times more powerful than in the Stone Age, but we are not more satisfied we're less than happy, people in the Stone think? Age. I'm not sure that we are less happy, Because who knows but what I like would in the definitely say we have no evidence that we are happier.
0: <laughs> We've got no bloody evidence after all this work, not a shred of evidence that we're any happier. And I think this is an integral point, isn't it, Yuval, that, that this drive to find satisfaction, this uh, as yet uh, unmet drive to find satisfaction is interesting and like wouldn't like uh you know well buddha he was pretty plain about it when he says There's no point doing that the house is on fire get out of the house stop believing in the material world stop believing in this illusion find uh connection or enlightenment within now like don't don't, don't you think a, fin- a fundamental shift in the consciousness of one individual i.e. you that you've obviously had this shift you're obviously a person if you spend two hours a day in meditation and writing books like that you've obviously experienced some degree of you know to to and to reconfigure the word love once more to mean connection connection to oneself connection to one's environment connection to another you know do you think that if there if a significant number of human beings made this change that we are no longer pursuing satisfaction we can no longer with the carrot and the stick be driven through evolution into deeper and deeper prisons beginning with agriculture and ending with us in a banal grey cell governed by an algorithm is it the way for us to separate from from that potential unfolding narrative to somehow find freedom from our inner drives freedom from our own petty desires Freedom from our own belief that our individualistic pursuit of happiness is what is determining. Ah, uh,
1: no. Oh, come
0: on, mate.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's not scalable. Um, it's <laughs> something's
0: got to happen. I'm giving you a banana. Oh, yeah, a banana oh, there. Uh, so I know you love a banana. <laughs> and look at this, what's happening? Yeah, I do want one. It's all you ever bloody talk uh, about. Now I will offer you one, you don't want it. What's wrong with you, you foul? So what did you like as a little kid, may I
1: ask? Don't you want an answer to the oh, previous no, I've question? I've gone off that now. <laughs> well, I think it I like it can monkey. work for individuals, but not for societies as a whole. I mean, Buddha himself failed to change society as a whole. Hold it's... on, it's too early to say. Oh, okay. I've maybe, only maybe just cottoned to it. Maybe it was when I got it. Okay, so at least for for the last two thousand years, even in Buddhist countries, I mean, people can can you know recite. Like a like a parrot, all the right things. They're going out
0: there selling drugs.
1: Yeah, they still have wars. They still have social oppression. They have all all of it. So, I just think that you know it can work for an individual. I mean, the way out is there, but I don't think that an entire society. Hmm?
0: So we need to make this story a little more appealing,
1: the story of self change. The you know. But then when you try to make the story appealing, Mm -hmm. um. Usually what happens, you lose the truth. You lose the Mm. essence. I mean... Uh, for my experience, especially because I do meditate for two hours every day, it's just so difficult. Yeah, it's so hard, It's isn't just it? so hard that I don't see... Give up your iPhones, everyone, and just sit
0: quietly for two hours every single day. <laughs> Fuck! Oh. No, stop eating chocolate, stop masturbating, stop looking at porn, stop buying stuff, and sit <laughs> and meditate for two hours and write a very difficult book on the evolution of consciousness and our relationship to the material world. Now, but we can't prescribe that. I mean, look, I think what, what you know, like one of the things Buddha stuck in there was we've got to enlighten everyone. He was very clear about it, wasn't he? Yeah,
1: but he was thinking in terms of billions and billions of years. Oh, uh, he, he he wasn't have got a timeline on that. <laughs> he wasn't talk, as far as I understand. I mean, the time scale he was talking about was really billions of years. Um, he, I don't think he was under the illusion. No, he that, wasn't. You know, that's one years, thing Buddha wasn't yeah, under well,
0: illusions. He was determined. I'm not going to be under any. He said.
1: So you know, if you think in terms of fifty years, it's probably not going to work. So we're not going to be able to change the world.
0: But what about? Hold on, Yvonne. You say billions of years, but every single one of us that's alive now. Dead in 100 years. Yeah. The only thing that will survive is the ideas. Now, if we can make these ideas and narratives strong enough and appealing enough, my daughter's generation and any future children the rest of us may have, will have access to these ideas. I mean, like, isn't it stitched in there, the idea in every faith and ideology there is, look, sacrifice. Don't spend your life pursuing pleasure, because not only will it not make you happy, it won't make the world happy. Don't we have? Is it possible for me to raise my still as yet relatively neutral child to appreciate the idea that if you, the answers are within do not get caught up in these iPhones I'm already showing you to shut you up <laughs> Don't get caught up that they're the answer. Is it possible, Yuval? Is it possible for us to stop this, you know, even if not the, you know, of course I'm narrativizing it as a Hollywood thing. I love a story, me. But like, you know, the banal future, the banal dystopia that we're be- are blindly marching towards, is there a way of preventing it through self-change, through self-realisation? I mean, surely you are, a de- was this always your destiny when you were born? Where are you from? You're from Israeli, from are Israel, you? Israel, yeah. So like, we when you were born in Israel, was that out, for, you know, was that, the path that you were going to be walking? It looks like you've remade yourself through your own relationship with consciousness.
1: Um, um, It's definitely not something I was aware of Mm. uh, as a kid. I mean, I think the first time I saw the Buddha was on the Duran Duran uh, video clip of Save a Prayer it ends.
0: Say a for me now. Yeah, so it ends Who's with that an guy? image. Of- I
1: like this guy here. I think I'd like to be like him. This is little <laughs> vow, <Yuval>, everyone. <laughs> so um I Could don't have been Simon Lebon. You went the right direction, thank God. <laughs> thank you. So uh, going back to the question about about your daughter. Mm. Well, the the thing is I mean you can uh, it's very important to place it on the table. The mm. option but you cannot uh, force it and you cannot uh, determine it, especially because nobody has any idea what kind of world she will inhabit in 50 years. And this is a very frightening thought. And this is the first time in history when parents have absolutely no idea whatsoever what kind of world their kids will inhabit. Now, of course, it was always impossible to predict the future accurately. Like if you live a thousand years ago in England in the Middle Ages, you don't know. Maybe the Vikings will invade. Maybe the Black Death will come. Anything can happen. But the basic... Both of those options are awful. Yeah. (laughs) But the basic facts of human life are not going to change in the lifetime of your kids. They will probably still be peasants. Their bodies will be the same as mine. Their family relations will be the same as as mine. But today, you look 50 years to the future, nobody knows what the kids of today will will, will do for a living, if they'll have any jobs at all. Nobody knows what kind of bodies they will have. Nobody knows what kind of sexual or romantic relationships they will have. I bloody with my daughter, none.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm clamping down on that right away. I know what you mean. We stand on the precipice of something inconceivable, but perhaps we always did if you take away our understanding of chronological time based on our own lifespans. I mean, what is a thousand years if you take out the fact that a human being lives 75 years? It doesn't really have but, an but, objective but, but value. But it,
1: it is a real change though, because in the Middle Ages, being an adult gave you authority because you had the experience and knowledge that the young people needed. Uh, Today, it's the opposite. I mean, most of your experience and knowledge is going to be irrelevant. So it's no wonder that parents or adults are losing their authority because, yes, they have less... Important things <clears throat> to tell the young people you because they just don't know.
0: Look, you Val. Now look here. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, you've said like, of course, you know. Well, like, I I agree with what you have said that. Uh you know, that we c- couldn't determine human history. But looking back at it, it has been defined by ideas. It ha- whether it's capitalism, communism, fascism, uh, agriculture, ideas and inventions. So for me, what remains is the, is the notion that ideas are what changed the world. So if you want power, if you want influence, control ideas. Yes. And like even though there is, of course, a tendency for the current dominant power structures to exert their power Power into new terrains such as the cyber realities. The potential for change continues to exist as long as human beings feel emotion. As long as one individual can spell different human beings into new stories, hmm. and particularly if we're about to create a great big dissatisfied underclass people that are susceptible to charismatic leaders. I'm going to sit down again. I'm only I'm only messing about. What I'm saying is, this change is always possible, um, because ideas will. Always have a value. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in this uh, banal, bloody cyberland that we're creating, except we need to wake up to the possibility that it may need to be prevented before it gets too much further down the road. Mm. That's one thing I'm thinking.
1: Yeah, I think change is not only possible, it's inevitable. The one thing you know for certain about the future, it's going to change it's at a much rapid pace uh, mm. than today. We just don't know how. Uh, and also, it's not deterministic. Uh, There is not just a single future Mm. out there. Uh, If you don't like a particular future, you can still try and do something about it. You know, it's like in the 20th century that you could use the same technologies of train, electricity and radio uh, to create a communist dictatorship or a fascist regime or a liberal democracy. The radio and the trains did not tell you what to do with them.
0: No, so other force did.
1: Some other force, some other energy drives us in that direction, culture and I think ideas. that can, only
0: yeah. And the cultural ideas comes from where, and like you know, ultimately this is taking place in human consciousness currently, and like so, human consciousness is the thing that is the point of impact. This is the point where change has, where we still have potential. Now, Yuval, uh, we have been talking for. Over 60 minutes. It's been a wonderful conversation. You, I admire you very deeply. Your <laughs> ability to disseminate information to make very complex ideas accessible. I love your book, Sapiens. I've banged on about it for ages. I'm enjoying your book, Homo Deus. And uh, I, from what you've explained to me, I've enjoyed very, very much. I suppose, and under, you're not, like, I suppose you're a person, you're like a kind of a rational guy. I just, I'm a pumped up romanticist. I believe, I, you know, God, I don't know, there's something in me. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is but it's it seems to I believe in change. I believe that I believe in hope. I believe that human beings ultimately will not be defined by their most negative attributes that there is still a chance for the things that we feel that are positive to become the basis for our systems, to become the basis for our stories and that capitalism is one of our worst stories. That globalism is one of our worst stories and that we can still tell better stories. And thank you for making this information accessible to me. Thank you. Thank you. Still like to walk your dog, do you? Hour a day of dog walking?
1: Uh, yes, still do it.
0: Yeah, I'll spend a lot of time walking my dog as well. He's ungrateful. <laughs> no, mine is very grateful. Oh, he's getting, and every score, he's doing better, isn't he? Plus he lives in that beautiful kibbutz. What <laughs> <Not> a kibbutz. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Yuval Noah Harari. I love your literature and I've loved meeting you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Well... I think that was a
0: thoroughly good interview between me and Yeovil Noah Harari. Let me tell you a secret. I've recorded this bit before. It it could have been diabolical for all I know. I mean, I've got to be optimistic about it, haven't I? The show is sponsored by me, as you know. Come and see me at uh, various places on my rebirth tour. Go at russellbrand.com. Tour dates include Woking, 3rd of May, Oxford, 10th of May, Southport, 23rd of May, Aylesbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skegness, 15th of June. Go dot russellbrand.com for tickets. Next week on Under the Skin, I'll be speaking to... None other than Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. Super Vet of Channel 4's TV programme, Super (laughs) Vet. He is a vet. But is he the same as the other ones, or has he got something a bit extra and a bit super? I think the title of the show makes it clear. I've also become friends with him. He's operated on my dog. We're going to be talking about, well, he's actually really, he's got some interesting views about medicine, cancer treatment, and the role of big pharma in the world. So it's probably going to be quite controversial, so you might want to listen to that, Russell Brand under the skin.